0: to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that's been taking us through the New Testament by explaining, exploring, and experiencing the text. Our guides through the New Testament are Tony and Charmaine Chavala-Smith, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. You can see Tony and Charmaine Chavalis Smith and me and the wonderful slides that they offer as part of uh, the uh, discussion that we have if you go to Latter-day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel. Now, in today's episode, we are um, At the end of the New Testament and we will be looking at what has to be the most misunderstood book in the New Testament and that is the book of Revelation. Um, So between the legacy of um, future telling and left behind populist theology and uh, movies about Armageddon Revelation has a lot of baggage attached to it from from all of those things in our our cultural experience. So let's see how Tony and Charmaine unpack this particular (laughs) book for us. So let's dive into the text.
2: Yes, you're right. Revelation (laughs) Revelation is a a playground for ignorance on, shall we say, a biblical scale. (laughs) 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 It's excellent. it's It's the place where... Many people go who should not go there.
1: (laughs) All right. All right. It's it's the Carnival Cruise Buffet.
3: (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So I think we decided that probably the best place to begin is to say that it really is an irony as to how this book gets both portrayed and used, um, the Book of Revelation, When the original purpose of this book, the only reason it was written was to encourage people (laughs) to let them know that God was with them in a very difficult time and assurance that God knew what was happening and would, would, would be with them. And that, that it's, it's God's job in the end for any judgment kinds of things, Mm -hmm. um, and and that and it gives us glimpses of what God's desire is for humanity and it's good (laughs) and it's good and that's why it's so disturbing and ironic that it gets used in so many negative fear-producing ways Um, and we'll talk a a little bit about that but I wanted to to say first of all the main reason this was written was to encourage people to stay faithful, to know that God was with them. And if you get nothing else from this, you can stop right now. And you got that (laughs) message. (laughs) Don't even have to listen to the rest of the
1: podcast. There we
3: go. Don't listen to all those other naysayers and the ones who are trying to use it to whoop up some fear and somehow thinking that that's going to help people develop a really good relationship with God if, if they're afraid of the of some end time in the future. Well, let's see how we can look at
1: it through a different lens. Sure. The, the
2: main place to start here is with the question of literary genre. This is where all the mistakes get made, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: What What is it I am reading, right? Um, you, you You get a You get a Hallmark card from your beloved on Valentine's Day, and you think, Oh my gosh, it's a newspaper editorial. Uh, you, are go- you are going to be misreading the intent and the message of this card. So the, the primary mistake that readers typically make with this book is it, it's a twofold mistake. First of all, they assume that in the Bible, prophecy is always future telling.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Then they assume that this is a book of prophetic future telling simply because the author in chapter one says, t- speaks of the words of the prophecy of this book. When in fact, in the biblical tradition, especially in the Old Testament tradition, prophecy is not foretelling much at all. It's describing the present, mm-hmm. present predicament, the present circumstances from the God's eye perspective, which is what the prophet in the Hebrew Bible gets gets to, to understand, and what the seer in the Book of Revelation gets to see.
4: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: So the the genre of this book is it's an it's an apocalypse. All but chapters two and three, which are uh, sometimes called the letters to the churches, but they're they're more like uh, uh, prophetic pronouncements to the churches. Uh, everything else in the book fits in the genre of the apocalypse. And so we have to know what an apocalypse was in the first century if we want to make sense of the book as the author intended it and as the first readers would have read it. So that's what we're going to do first. We're going to spend a little more time than we usually do on literary genre because it's so important. So...
1: So when we talk about genre, um, to put it in a in a current cultural context, if if I begin to tell you something and I'm I'm like once upon a time, right there you've got indicators that this is a fairy tale, and if you know you know that and you know right then there's going to be a princess and a prince and a toad and an evil somebody, you know you know it's going to happen, you know it's not a Stephen King novel, exactly right. So when we talk about genre, that's the kind of thing we're talking
3: about. Exactly. Right. different literary forms, different ways of writing something, and authors in all times have had a variety of options that they can use to communicate what they want to communicate. Some kinds of things, because of its very nature, lend itself towards certain types of communication, and that is the the situation with apocalypses.
2: So the first thing we'll say is that the, the Book of Revelation. Uh, is an apocalypse. And so the genre apocalypse gets its title from the Greek verb apokalypto, which in Greek means to uncover something, right? To take the veil off something, to reveal something. So scholars use that word to define, to describe this genre of literature. And uh, apocalypses as a type of literature arose in Judaism, we'll say roughly around 200 BCE. And they had a lifespan of about 300 years. So so the last of the Jewish apocalypses are written around 100 CE, early early into the second century. And the book of Revelation has most of the features of these Jewish apocalypses. So it's it's part of the genre.
3: And this is one of those places where we're reminded again that the earliest Christians were all Jews and their scripture is the Old Testament. And there isn't a New Testament until, you know. 300 and something with consensus on typically what books will be in it, but everybody who's part of Christianity is going to be richly blessed in and steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. So we see, so the fact that this way of communicating that you would find in some of the Hebrew scriptures um, is a natural, especially in a situation where people are under duress where mm-hmm. where in this case the romans are starting to uh, pr- more systematically persecute christians and prosecute uh christians and so this um kind of literature that is that helps the oppressed speak their their fear their agony and their need for hope mm-hmm. is really appropriate
2: so, the, the term apocalypse then refers to this kind of literature as it's revelatory literature. In other words, in an apocalypse, the author slash seer narrates in some way an experience or a series of experiences he has had of, of a visionary nature. And these, these experiences were designed to uncover the meaning of what's going on now. Uh, we'll have to say again and again. The in the apocalypses, the predictive element is very minimal and it's not far-off prediction, it's near near future. In other words, the, the 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 revelation that the author has received, and this goes for Jewish apocalypses too. The revelation is is for the readers right then. And any future talk is designed to give them a sense that that the desired future is really close by. So um, this this genre, Charmaine mentioned this this genre of literature emerged in Judaism uh, in the second second century BCE in times uh, in times of severe persecution when when Jewish people found themselves being hammered by outside powers for just simply for being Jews. The the one the one piece of apocalyptic literature that is in the Hebrew Bible is the Book of Daniel, and in that book, chapters 7 through 12 are the apocalypse, and it's actually a series of apocalypses. And it's very easy to place that book. Uh, the those visions are speaking to Jews during the Maccabean Revolt, roughly around 165 BCE, when the when the uh Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes has simply outlawed Judaism, and and many Jews who were not converting to Hellenism or to Greek ways of thinking were just being tortured and murdered. So the book of Daniel was written in that situation. And in in every apocalypse, and there's a lot of non-canonical ones, but in every apocalypse, you can pretty much uh, detect what the historical situation is. And they all are literature that come out of situations of, of where, where there's like violent suppression of the faithful for some reason. And so for this reason, I like to say that apocalyptic literature is resistance literature, right? It was it, it intends to help struggling readers uh, find a way to resist—not not physically or violently, but to resist faithfully the temptation to uh, abandon their faith and hope mm-hmm. uh, because of the persecution. So that's a really important key for understanding them. This is true of the of the Book of Revelation too. It's it's uh, mm-hmm. it's it's really it's really good re- resistance <laughs> literature. <laughs> so. Uh, we mentioned that the genre, this genre's aim is not predictive. It's what we would call hortatory. That is, it, a- it aims to exhort the readers to keep faith, uh, even amidst situations that are really brutal and horrible. So that's what the the authors are trying to do. Uh, imagine you're you're an embattled Jew in the second century BCE, or you're you're a Christian in Roman Asia in the late first century when Revelation was written, and you receive this. You receive this text that's read in a worship service with all these images and so on, and imagine that somehow the text is intended for the twenty first century. Well, well how, how what bad would is that going
3: to do them? <laughs> <laughs> it's, what it's not for us.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so this literature is written for an original audience, and that's so important for understanding what's going on in it. Um, one of the ways the apocalypses do what they do. Is that they try to describe the author's mystical experiences uh, and their experience of God's presence in in various in various kinds of uh, fantastic ways, right? Beasts, uh, beasts, objects, um, dragons, uh, numbers. Everything is everything is described in, in very mystical terms.
3: And with heightened sense of threat, that um, these horrible beasts are about to do something or destroy something, uh, they're at the door. They're coming. Uh, they are the the part of the the systems that that run our lives. It's all of it's all there.
2: And so it'll be very easy to figure out in the Book of Revelation that that the dragon is Satan, and there's two beasts. The first beast is the Roman empire. And the second beast is the apparatus of worship connected to the Roman the Roman rulers. So it's very easy to figure it out, right? And so, But de- depic- depicting oppressive realities with beast imagery conveys to the imagination and the feeling something of the reality of it, mm-hmm. right? Like, like for us, like our political cartoons sometimes use animals and characters to convey certain things. Uh that, that need to be conveyed at a feeling level, not just a head level. So one of the things that's interesting about the apocalypse is, is that they, they use a lot of language and terminology from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they seldom give long quotes in the Hebrew Bible, though. In other words, they they take images, language, concepts, terms, and they're sort of retooling it. But it's it's pretty easy to see, like, for example, the book of Revelation makes heavy use of images and language from from Daniel and from Ezekiel and from other books, of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. From some, and from Isaiah. So a, a first reader of one of these texts, it's assumed that they are familiar with the Jewish scriptures. Um, and that would give us a little bit of a clue about this author's audience. They're, they may primarily have been Jewish Christians or Christians who had some connection to Judaism or the synagogue, Um and so they would have immediately caught caught the biblical, the biblical imagery that's being used uh, used throughout it. And so basically, so again, we're gonna we're going kind of give you the short version. Um, apocalypses always aim to keep hope in God's presence and hope for God's justice alive among the readers. So in a nutshell, all apocalypses, Jewish, Christian, canonical, non-canonical. Uh, and this includes the Book of Revelation. They have a very simple message. When you when you when you strip it down, it's God is sovereign in history. Things are things are bad, and they're going to get worse before they get better, mm-hmm. which is going to be quickly, very soon. <laughs>
4: um,
2: we're almost there. You know, are we there yet? Yes, we're almost there. So stay tr- <laughs> so stay true. Evil and suffering and oppression and violence will not have the last word in God's creation, and there will be final justice. So now if you compare the book of Revelation with, say, the Jewish apocalypse, fourth Ezra with the Jewish apocalypse, second brook, there's, there's a bunch of these, right? Obviously, each, each one will have its own distinctive cast and so on. But when you pair their message down, that's pretty much where you'll come out with all of them. Endure, endure, endure. Trust God, trust God. I trust God, uh, God's, God's got this, hang in there, don't give up, is pretty much the message of an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So we thought what we do next is we're going to take a look at chapter one of the book of Revelation, and You'll you'll be able to see some of these features starting in verse nine.
3: So this is a passage um, nine to 20, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you. And we can stop partway through and mm-hmm. and um, make some of the comments that tie in with what we've described so far as the genre. So uh, Revelation one nine to twenty, and this is the introduction, the the author introducing himself. So I John your brother who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient and patient endurance. Was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it's one sentence, but it tells us a whole bunch. Um, so he's he's recognizing that he's acknowledging to them that he is sharing in the in the problems of of right now because of Jesus, because of belief in Jesus, and that the persecution and so he's. He's kind of giving a short version here. Persecution, the kingdom, patient endurance. We're going to look at all of that is basically what he's (laughs) saying in this letter. But he's then he's saying he's on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he is there. He's been exiled to this little island uh, by the Romans, which you're going to talk a little bit more about exile uh, being a kind of punishment Rather than killing someone who uh, is saying things you don't want because that'll make them a martyr, you exile them away from family, from community, from everything. Um, but uh, he is able to write this uh, about this vision and uh, and have it sent to the churches. So then he starts to explain what happened to him. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning in prayer or meditation And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So these are the seven churches, uh, seven here being an important number, uh, wholeness, which again is uh, one of those numbers important in Hebrew scriptures. Um, But it's also naming these. These seven um congregations that are in pretty near proximity to each other.
2: They're all in Roman Asia too, so they're mm-hmm. off the same province.
3: And so he's naming them. It, it, there's something really powerful about you being named mm-hmm. as the the reason why this vision came to someone. So this is God noticing you. And I think it's that's important to to see as we start out this this book. So then the author, the one who's having the vision, John, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash across, across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. Oof, what a description. (laughs) And when we start looking at the particulars here, we'll begin to see as so someone saw one like the son of man this is a description of jesus basically um but all of these descriptors clothed in a long robe with a golden sash these are old testament images that people would have recognized uh his head and hair white as white wool white as snow these would have been terms that would have been used in reference to god um and so Again, already we're seeing this equating of Jesus and God uh, as being of the same nature. His feet were like burnished bronze, again, refined as in a furnace, and his voice like many waters. Some some of this
2: language here comes from Daniel chapter 7. So the the apocalyptic author is borrowing image, images from, from the apocalypse, apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, which, which we know that they did. They, they shared images. Uh, there's a, a common fund of images across these books, which may be why at the end of Revelation, the author says, don't add to this book anymore, because he knows that apocalyptic authors do that.
3: Mm-hmm. So, and it's very interesting things like, uh, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. So um there's an at least one other place where um Jesus it actually goes into battle with this sword that comes mm-hmm. from his mouth and and it, the idea here is that he's not the only weapon he's taking is God's word the mm-hmm. word just in actually it, it, in yes, in Jesus. revelation Jesus is called the word of god mm-hmm. so um so it's very interesting in um what chapter was I looking at earlier? But it's where this—the whole idea that um, Jesus on this white horse and and the the righteous on white horses will go into battle—but all he's taking is this sword, this the words that he brings about God um, as his um, as his weapon. And so it's it's one of the things you'll find in Apocalypse is you'll find images that we usually think of in one way being completely used in another way. So the idea of a sword um, not being used to physically kill people, but to, to right the wrong, to help people see with clarity what, uh, what has been deceptive previously. So uh, lots of Old Testament images there. And then when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. So here's the, all the self-identifying. Again, we're seeing all these different messages that are telling us that this is Jesus. this is Christ. Um, Do not be afraid. You know, that whole Message that keeps coming through the Gospels when uh, when God is revealed in some way or Christ is revealed. I am the first and the last. This is an assurance that you can trust me um, for what is to come, as you have trusted me for what already is. I am the living one. And then that whole thing about there. Some of the, the these Christians have died because of their belief. I was dead. And see, now I'm alive. So it's like he's identifying with their greatest fears. Um, I have the keys of death and Hades. Um, that death is not the last word for those whom you've lost or for, for your own fears of death. Um, so now, again, write what you have seen. Um, and then And then this is wonderful because this is something that lots of people don't realize. And that is that the author of the book of Revelation, often tells us what these symbols mean. So we have this tendency to say, ooh, we need to have some template that will tell us exactly what all of these images are. But the author does quite a bit of that for us if we're willing to listen to them instead of just make up our own stuff that will scare somebody. So for as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Christ's hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven churches that were mentioned, um, there's this idea that there's an angel or that the spirit is present in a real form, a real sense in each of the churches. And so here is this image of Christ walking among the congregations and, um, and being present with them and that the spirit is already there in each of those as well so this is one of those places where the author tells us what the symbols mean
2: and also it's really important to understand there's a whole political side to what's being said Mm -hmm. here uh and we're going to say more about that shortly when we get to setting but imperial rome controls everything right and here's uh someone imperial rome executed who says oh nope sorry i'm alive I'm in charge of death and hate and the underworld, not Rome. Mm-hmm. And then that down below, this is the seven, the seven stars. Uh, in, in Bart Ehrman's introduction to the New Testament, he, he, he has a picture, a photo of a coin that was minted during the reign of the emperor Domitian. And
4: Domitian
2: is <laughs> Domitian is behind the scenes here in this book. We're going to get to him soon. The emperor Domitian at the birth of one of his sons had a coin minted and it shows it shows this little infant child holding out his hand to the seven stars, equaling the universe, the seven planets, and the inscriptions talks about the divine, the son of the divine emperor uh, Domitian. And so, this right here is raising a counterpoint: uh, who really, who really holds the universe in his hand? Not the emperor, not not the Roman Empire, but actually Jesus, who was crucified and who is still alive. And so. The first readers of this probably had had that coin in their pockets, you know, and so the the, the political implications uh, of this theological text would have been immediately transparent to the first readers. I'm
3: gonna go ahead and stop, share. Sure. Okay.
2: So that gives us a taste. Of a lot of features of the Apocalypse are 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 present in, in those few lines there. So, next question would be, well, who who wrote this? And the author names himself as John, but this author is not the same author as the one who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, totally different style, totally different word use. This author's Greek is clearly his second language. <laughs> he he writes Greek as if he were thinking in Aramaic or maybe Hebrew, um, whereas the Gospel of John is not written like that. So, so we don't have any reason to say his name isn't John. It's John. It's just not John the Apostle. It's not John the Beloved, which is a thing that has been made up. We don't know that the beloved disciple was called John. And it's not the same author as the one who wrote first, second, and third John the letters, and who identifies that author identifies himself as the elder. So we have we have some, some early Christian prophet named John, who is connected to the tradition out of which the Gospel of John comes and the letters come. <laughs> Scholars refer to that as the Johannine tradition, just as a, as a shorthand, but this is a different author from, from those. And then, when? Well, current scholarship generally agrees that this book comes from ver- very late in the reign of the Emperor Domitian. So that's 95 to 96 uh, of the first century. And then, if we look at the setting of the book, there's there's two things we have to know. First of all, from a variety of sources, we know that in Roman Asia, Late in the first century, there were local persecutions of of Christians because of their refusal to engage in a form of of veneration of or worship of the emperor, the emperor's statue or the emperor's standard or something like that. So Domitian, we know, claimed, (laughs) unlike his predecessors, claimed that he was Lord and God while he was still alive
3: usually emperors waited, you know, as after they died, they were made gods that could be worshipped and um and fi- you know could find favor with them. Domitians
2: skipping the middle man there <laughs>
3: right and so special.
2: yes, right. so so we we also know that the cities of Roman Asia, one of which Ephesus was a huge city, the cities of Roman a- Asia would would try would would try to compete with each other to see who could show the most veneration to the emperor because, of course, you got stuff from Rome. if you. Oh, can. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the situation. Late in the first century, Christians, even Christians of Jewish background, are no longer connected to the synagogues. And Roman law and practice allowed Jews to be exempt from these emperor worship things because of they saw Judaism as an ancient religion. And so they just kind of said, all right, we're going to grandfather that in. But Christianity was treated by now as a new religion that had no standing. And so Christians in these congregations uh, in Ephesus and Smyrna and so on, they're faced with the situation of, do I do the emperor worship? And if I don't, I'm going to stand out like a sore thumb and then be the victim of not only just ostracism, but then it's, it's, it's going to start to get violent too. So that's the situation on the ground in Asia. And then the author Charmaine mentioned he's he's on the island of Patmos, he's been banished. That indicates that the Romans saw him as some kind of a ringleader or leader. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's a little odd. If this is the Roman punishment called uh relegatio ad insulam, that is banishment to an island. Typically, as far as we know, that was for that was for somebody with Roman citizenship. So if the author had Roman citizenship, he didn't lose it, but he lost contact, he, he was no longer able to. To be present uh in person in roman asia and it would have been for an unspecified amount of time this was not this this was not all right 30 days and you're out this the romans could keep him there indefinitely so we know that romans uh roman empire used islands little islands in the aegean sea as exile islands too Mm -hmm. so so uh that's his situation um he is somehow in charge of these churches. We don't know how he doesn't describe himself as a bishop or anything like that. Um, he describes himself as a prophet, but he is connected to them and he's stuck on the island. If 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 it was that particular Roman punishment, he apparently could write and have visitors. That's probably how this got off the island in the first place, but not mm-hmm. him. He's, mm-hmm. he's stuck out there for the duration. Yes. So then, then who's this addressed to? Well, Uh, We have those seven churches in in Roman Asia, and they're they're struggling. These churches are struggling with external forces and internal forces. Obviously, the external forces are the forces of persecution and social pushback because of of being Christians. The inner situation is sort of outlined in those, uh, we'll call them the letters to the churches. These churches are in various degrees of health and unhealth. And one of the things that's going on internally in the, in the churches is there are some people who are saying something like, "He's not really a god. Let's just do the let's just do the sacrifice and be done with it, and then we'll be fine." And others are saying, "We can't do that. That's that's worshiping an idol." So it's that kind of tension. Um, and some of these, some of the churches, if we follow the letters, uh, some of the churches are one of them is lukewarm, um, <laughs> and.
3: One has forgotten its first love, mm-hmm. the first love of God, and now it's um, it's cooled <laughs> and perhaps is more concerned about its cultural standing than it is to about its relationship with God.
2: One of them is like, we've we've got tons of reserves in the bank. We're we're good. <laughs> we're <laughs> rich. Just, we don't need anything. And, yeah. and to which John says, you have no idea how needy you are. Right. So another, <laughs> another
3: has some leaders within it that are kind of leading people astray. And so they're warned about that.
2: Mm-hmm. And at least one of these churches has had somebody martyred, has had somebody killed uh, because of, of being a Christian. So so they're, they're congregations in various states of crisis, really. And that's then John has this experience and a series of experiences. And then writing something like the apocalypse of john is not something you did in a weekend. hey, okay. this is a long complicated text, right? so he didn't just jot this down. well, he had a lot of time on the island. that's right.
1: <laughs> not a lot of other things. yeah, but you, but you <laughs> gotta there's no be- shopping, there's no amazon to deliver, i mean
2: <laughs> and and all you've got is olives and fish. olives yeah. and I'm so tired of olives <laughs> and fish, right? so but um so he's th- this this book is addressed to Christians in a real historical crisis moment, um, but numbers are always symbolic in this book too. They're symbolic of bigger realities, and so uh, the seven churches represent the church,
3: the wholeness, the, the, the wholeness complete the church. church. Mm-hmm. So everyone can overhear that for themselves the the good news in it as well.
2: So what's the message then to these people? Well, we're gonna we're gonna first we're gonna say this is what the message is not because we have we have to go over this. Again and again and again, because uh, in American religious culture, for sure, but other places in the world, the book of Revelation is so horribly misread and misused and people are abused with it. We, it it's it's sort of a cultural default setting that uh, really needs to be overcome.
3: Well, there's actually a lot of people who are afraid to read the book of Revelation. Oh, absolutely. Because mm. either they or someone they know have been traumatized by it and they're uh, afraid of what it says um, which, wow, that's talk about, um, harming people with scripture and harming scripture for people. Yeah.
2: So the, what the message is not, well, for one thing, this message is not a call to passivity, right? It's, 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 the message is not do nothing because you can't change the future. It's not that at all. Um, it's rather quite opposite of that. Uh, practice hope because because there's going to be a different future. Right? Um this message, the message of the book of Revelation is not get revenge, be violent, join a survivalist group, <laughs> right? All that kind of nonsense. It's not that at all. There's no there's no there's no vengeance on the part of the readers that is allowed in the book of Revelation. Um, this the message is not a prediction of the 21st century. You cannot find.
3: It's not about us. It's not about Isn't us. Isn't everything about right. us? <laughs>
2: you in the nineteen eighties, people were trying to find Gorbachev and Reagan in the book, and so <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. This, this is, this is, this is uninformed reading of a text, right? So, so uh, the the message of the book is is not that we'll be raptured soon. First of all, the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, and secondly, this book is not about people going up to heaven it's about heaven coming down to earth right
3: also another thing it's not it doesn't talk about the antichrist the term antichrist is not in the book of revelation right it's in but it's in all the movies that were based on the book of revelation
2: right (laughs) and the people who did those movies are laughing on their way to the bank they are
3: (laughs) <laughs> but they were uninformed <laughs> yeah. as to what is actually in scripture.
2: <laughs> um, this the message of the book is not be careful about using credit cards or you'll get the mark of the beast on you. It's not that, right? Um, it's it's not so-and-so is the antichrist, you insert your favorite villain or enemy. It's not that, right? And the message of the book of Revelation is definitely not quote unquote, it's all predicted in the book of Revelation. No, it's not. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a, a disastrously horrible misreading of the book. So what, what is the message? We had to go negative first because we've <laughs> got to get that stuff off the table. Well, the main, the main figure in this book is the lamb. The lamb who, who was slaughtered and is alive. And it's the lamb who has already conquered death, who is the real power uh, in the midst of history, not the Roman Empire. So that's pretty cool, actually, when you think about it. Um, Suffering love and not oppressing others is the key to the future in this book. Uh, God's judgment on the Roman Empire has already begun. That's part of the message of the book. Um, The reign of God is near us. That's part of its message to its first readers. Uh, Christ, at the end of the book, there's a wonderful invitation uh, Christ, Christ's invitation remains open to uses the word come, 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 it's free to, it's, please, please come, uh, meaning to hang in there with following Jesus for the readers themselves, or to keep, uh, keep resisting the empire, keep living this new way. Don't give up hope. All of that's connected with coming to Christ, uh, as the book describes it. I'll read that. Yeah, right, if that's all right. Sure.
3: So it's uh, Revelation 22, <clears throat> uh, starting 16 through 17. Um, It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift.
2: And what's really fascinating about the book of Revelation as an apocalypse, when you read it against some other Jewish apocalypses from the period, is that, for example, the the Jewish apocalypse called Fourth Ezra, which is from exactly the same time period, dealing with some of the same issues, but from a Jewish perspective, the apocalypse of of Ezra basically says that the the final number of the redeemed is a very small number. Uh, The book of Revelation is quite opposite. It's an open-ended number. Uh, in fact
3: uncountable
2: this, uncountable in fact one hundred forty-four thousand in chapter back in chapter six and seven ter- the text tells you it's it interprets it for you it's not literal it's a symbolic number of the full number of the redeemed who can't be counted the text says so in other words there's not there's not any kind of predestination in this book where where you know you know if if you're if, if you do number one hundred forty-four thousand and one, it really is bad to be you so that that kind of open-endedness is, is unique here in this particular book, and I think that's quite quite a uh, good, good feature of it.
3: Yeah, and just to go to the 144,000, uh, because we're not going to get to all the symbols, but this is one that uh, quite often gets used as some kind of definitive end number, um, and so it's talking about actually the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, so this this again is an inclusiveness, so you hear that you uh, you hear these numbers, this many people from each of the 12 tribes, but in an apocalypse, it's, it's not just what you hear, it's what you see that makes sense of what you hear, and so then after the naming of all the tribes, there's 12,000 of these, and this, and this, and this, um, and it's after this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the land, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out and it's the worshiping God. So this is, it's much, 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 much bigger than the 144,000. The 12 times 12 is again, one of the number things that would be common in Jewish uh, yeah. understanding symbol, symbology.
2: So final salvation this book is a multi-ethnic inclusion fest. <laughs> right. It's huge. And, and it and there's there there are no there are no boundaries. There are no walls. There are only open doors. So it's quite quite fascinating. One final thing here, just to say about the book, is that apocalypses have a kind of a literary structure that they all share. Um, they're they're written as a series of concentric circles as when you re- if you so this
1: if- is where this is where we get into the Slinky. Yes. For those of you that <laughs>
2: <Right. are laughs> Yeah.
1: Vintage uh, age you know what a Slinky is.
2: Right, exactly. So so the the author will will give it will give a, have a will explain a vision in a in a circle and then start over again with maybe another vision but it'll be saying the same thing. And sometimes the saying of the same thing focuses on different aspects of it, but but the the cycles of seven in this book basically keep r- rotating around to say the same thing over again god's got this it's bad but but hang in there you're going to be okay on the other side salvation is coming uh stay faithful it's, they all of the cycles really say this so th- the reason to know that is because one of the classic ways to misinterpret this book is to treat it like as Luke Johnson calls it like a bus schedule right so if i if i can just find if I could just figure out where this is, then I know, ah, in oh,
3: history, this- in history, <laughs> right. then
2: right, right, well, this must be World War One. So everything after it in the text is everything in the 20th century. It's like no, <laughs> this is a horrible re- way to read the book, and it doesn't pay attention to this literary device of the concentric circles
3: or what the message is. It's still focused on us having somehow this special knowledge of when the end is going to come or when. Um... God's judgment will come so we can figure out who who's going to get judged. Um, you know, we tend to make it all about us and we, we miss so much when we do that.
2: So let's move on to explore and we'll start, Karen, where we usually start to see what what (laughs) scintillating questions Revelation raised for you.
1: (laughs) Oh, the questions on, um, Revelation. So it's actually become one of my more favorite books to have conversation about, um, and that comes from going through Community of Christ Seminary um, a long time ago. Now, when I look back at it, um, I think in 2001 through five. And one of the things that was really um, interesting to learn, and I'm, I want you to just speak a little bit more about it, is, is the numbers deal. that. In, in our contemporary culture, we start to look at numbers with um, inside meaning mm-hmm. as being associated maybe with the occult or paganism or that kind of thing. But um, in in Hebrew life and culture and writing and understanding, numbers had meaning and, and purpose. So it's, it's, you touched a little bit on the seven on being this kind of complete um, thing and the 144. Any, any, uh, multiplication of twelve is going to be this same kind of twelve tribes, the whole body of people, but there are others as well that we find when we are reading um, scripture. There's seventy, there's forty, which, um, in my colloquial way of speaking, it is like that, that's a long, long time. Yes. So when you read forty, it's that's a long, long time. Not not so much forty, one to you know. Right. So what what's going on there? I mean, we tend to look at it as a mysterious, you know, occultish thing.
2: Uh, so one one thing to say is that uh, in in Jewish synagogues, rabbis were were very ha- ha- like to like to do this. They like to play with the Torah in terms of finding different hidden meanings. And one of the games they played with the Torah was a game they called Gematria, which is a Aramaic or Hebrew way of saying geometry. <laughs> and so what they did was they used. Uh, Uh, Arabic numerals that we're used to were not invented yet, right? So um, people who lived in Semitic cultures used the Hebrew alphabet and letters then were given numerical values. Charmaine's going to pull up a a, a lovely chart for us here. So in other words, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph and there in the upper left-hand corner, uh, it equals one. And you go down to the the letter Yo, the tenth the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, which is ten, and then the next letter kaf, jumps up by ten to twenty, and so on and so forth up through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet until you get to the final so they letter. Go by
3: tens from that mm-hmm. point on until you get down to ta.
2: And this 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 is important to know. Actually, this this happens in the book of in the Gospel of Matthew, where fourteen. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, where 14 turns out to be the sum of the letters from the Hebrew name David, D-V-D, David. Those numbers equal 14. Well, here in the book of Revelation, the, the number is, of course, the 666 number, mm-hmm. right? right? And what's interesting to note is that some manuscripts of Revelation don't have that number. They have 616, So what scholars uh, figured out over the years is that there's only one name, only one name from the Roman Empire, that if you turn it into Hebrew characters, could, could, could legitimately be either 666 or 616, and that's the name Nero Caesar. And the reason is that the Hebrew language does not typically like to end a word with a long O, narrow. It uh, it it would it would want to end would want to stick an n on there just to, for pronunciation. Neron Kassar, Nero Caesar. If you add the n, which would have probably happened in spoken Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, you get six six six, right? If you if you leave the 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 n off, you get six one six, and that is the only name. So the the mark of so the so called the, the yeah.
3: numbers over on the the right here. Yeah. And the one in brackets is what the n would be of the fifty. So, um, so the mark of
1: the beast, the beast itself, is this horrible Roman um, figure of terror.
2: Yes. And Nero had been Nero had been dead thirty uh, odd years, roughly when this book was written, but the memory of Nero was was not a pleasant memory because Nero, well, Nero was. Uh, sadistic sadistic he was monstrous um his own contemporaries thought of him as crazed um and he started a pogrom against christians sometime in the 60s in rome and the roman historian tacitus describes the horrible tortures he put christians through but the memory of the memory of nero as this kind of person lasted a long time and so the 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 beast's mark is 666 or 616 and it simply is being stamped with the cruelty and the the uh unpredictability of nero um nero in other words nero has become a symbol of violent evil against god's people so that's that's what the the number e- equals it has nothing to do with your checkbook Karen i'm just wanting to tell you that <laughs> it has nothing to do with hotel rooms <laughs>
1: But when we, when we look at this um, chart and I really encourage our listeners to view this so that you can look at it for yourself on Latter-day Seeker Ministries um, on the YouTube channel, but it's, it's a lot like the secret decoder ring as kids, (laughs) a lot of kids have gotten where a letter equals a number or, or even just basic ciphers that we learn, you know, to do as we're going through school and we learn about cryptology and that kind of thing. That's what was happening here. Exactly. And so we find evidence of it in um, in Hebrew texts. Yeah. And so it's not secret. It's not magical. It's not any of that. It's simply a way of ciphering a message that would be known to some people and unknown to others. Exactly. Exactly. Right.
2: Right. So so if you look at this chart don't take the letters and then go try to go to the Hebrew Bible and figure out, you know, who's, who's doing what to whom with numbers. <laughs> because, because you'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah,
1: Absolutely. Because we don't have it in context
2: with, with the greater understanding. Absolutely. So. Num- okay. num- numbers, animals, beasts, uh, angels. I mean, all, all these, all these things that fill the ancient world's universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and
3: imaginations mm-hmm. and legendary. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: They're, they're depicted, in other words, in, in its own way, the book of Revelation and other apocalypses try to convey uh, a sort of Star Wars-y view of good versus <laughs> evil, right? It's a cosmic battle.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a cosmic battle. And for the book of Revelation, it actually has already been won. Right? It's been Excuse won. Me. What's left is the rear guard action. <laughs> so,
3: so uh, Yeah. So any other questions?
1: Well, yes, I'm hoping you can say a little bit more about the imagery, apocryphal imagery, um, in the same way as numbers have been kind of defined as occultish, the apocryphal imagery has has fascinated people and I remember, and I think it was the 1971 New Interpreters one volume commentary, they gave a really nice little article about it that just c- was kind of across the board on understanding apocryphal literature and some of that thing. Um, can you talk about that and how it's very similar to to
2: similes when we're talking about things, uh, you know, it's like kind of things? Um, sometimes the text will actually tell you Wh- whose face was shining like the sun in full force. And it's meant to be an image of glory and divine dignity. Lots of times the images are very transparent, what they mean. And often, as Charmaine mentioned, the the author will explain them quite often. Sometimes he doesn't need to explain them because Mm -hmm. they're just straightforward.
3: And and the dragon and the beasts are explained by the author Mm -hmm. uh, as being Rome and being this uh, worship of the emperor, this, this cult of worship. Of the emperor and the, and Satan and and mm-hmm. ultimate mm-hmm. conducting. So those are those are all um, those would have been very easy for people. Both they would have known it culturally, but also the images uh, say something about the character. Again, that poetic way of um, describing the with animals with these mythic animals, uh, the nature. Of this kind of power at work in the world, mm. so there's there's those. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm,
2: I'm thinking of one that's uh, it. It, it, so- it sounds crude to our ears, but the image of the city of Rome oh, yes. as the whore, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what's this? Is, this is this is political parody going on there. So the patron goddess of the Roman Empire and of the city of Rome is Roma. Right, the goddess Roma. And so the author depicts the city of Rome as a, a woman reclining on seven hills. It's pretty transparent. She's reclining. And he Rome
3: is, is, is built, built around seven seven hills.
2: And so uh, oh, by the way, when, when sometimes people say, Well, this was written in code language, so the Romans couldn't understand. It. It's like a, Roman, a <laughs> Roman would easily have understood that and been very highly offended by it. But um, so she's she's described not as this amazing divine woman but she's described as a prostitute and all yeah. and all the nations come and sleep with her is basically the, it, yeah. it's a it's it's a real slam against the roman empire and against yeah. the roma um and by the way uh prostitution fornication and so on in this book bear all the kinds of uh, the the, 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 me- the metaphorical weight that it had in the hebrew bible where it's it's connected with idolatry right Worshipping, worshipping other gods than Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible is tantamount to uh, being uh, being unfaithful.
4: Okay.
2: And so it's the same here. All these nations sleep with Rome, i.e., they worship the Roman Empire. And so, worshipping Rome, if we do that, that's a that's that's described as an illicit sexual activity. There's a there's that connection there. So
1: unfaithfulness to God. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly. absolutely yeah and so- there's some there's some more ordinary kind of imagery that's used too that we can miss um as we as we kind of go through it so we're we're used to the creatures and the beasts and the and the numbers because that's part of our culture and we hear about them but there's there's just kind of normal imagery that that you and i would use if we were trying to write poetry yeah or hymnody kind of
2: a thing the the depiction the depiction of the divine throne room
3: heavenly worship Mm -hmm. yeah beautiful yeah
2: the worship images absolutely yeah so yeah and so you know the thing to do in reading the book of revelation is first of all always let the author help you and then secondly when the author won't help you or can't you need a good study (laughs) critical study bible and, and a good good commentary uh, and a simple a simple one is Bruce Metzger's Breaking the Code, which is really quite lovely and and easy to read and very clear.
3: and use. it's set up in lessons with questions and background. And it has it'll give you a lot of the context kinds of pieces that we're giving you, but in a more organized way. and and I, one of the things we really love about this book and the the newer edition as well, is that the authors are willing to say, "Well, here's a symbol that, <laughs> We don't understand what it means, you know, and it's like they don't yeah. stuff up just to have credibility. In exactly. fact, their credibility comes in saying, you know, here's an image whose meaning we have lost.
1: What? They're not making it up as they go along. I thought that's what we did with Revelation. What are you talking about?
3: I don't know. But anyhow, it's it's a really good book and it's really accessible. So uh it's, it's really easy to read. Like senior high and, and, yes. and over
4: youth kind Young of discussion. Too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. We've done it. Uh, use that book quite a lot, and it it'll give you uh, lots of the background on those kinds of symbols. But it will also keep lifting up what is the main what's the main purpose of this book. And uh, I just we just we recommend that book a lot.
2: And if you want a more a more extensive commentary, a really good one is the one written by M. Eugene Boring uh, in the Interpretation series. It's a whole commentary in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. It's it's more it's more extensive in its notes and stuff and it's really quite well done uh he also is the one who wrote the footnotes in the new interpreter study bible uh, and his footnotes are really really good in the new interpreter study bible
3: in fact um there is a there's a really good one about violence in the book of revelation that comes from him and he's helping us to understand Mm -hmm. uh, kind of what what kind of violence are we talking about here and it's images of violence, but is it really about uh, God doing violence to others? And he puts it into the context, which I think is really important, of what is the reality of the people for whom this is written? They are afraid. They have been already oppressed. Some have died, and they are angry. They are angry at the Romans for this uh, marginalizing that's happening to them, the, the persecution, the suspicion that's being cast upon them. And, and they're saying, will we have justice? Will there be any justice for us? And so that's, that's part of what the author is trying to help them see is that, um, in the big picture, God is, God's going to take care of them. God will take care of, um, of the need for justice so it's it's a a nice little um excursus there in um mm-hmm. new interpreters bible from eugene boring as well yeah very nice, very nice. so I'm good be, like that before we go to the experiencing uh, part of this my my last
1: question is this in community of christ in the restoration tradition we have some weirdness in how okay. we've tried to understand uh the last days the latter days the you know what happens when you die uh, the, our our doctrine our theology has just been kind of it's had an interesting life as yeah. it's ebbed and flowed um in the life of the church we do have still some remnants of that laying around about end times and that kind of thing what's our responsibility when we read doesn't text? I mean, how, where are we, where are we now? How, how are we looking at that all um, well, together?
2: I, I mean, the community of Christ statement on scripture gives really solid advice on that. We want to use all the resources we can. We, we don't reject scholarship. We use scholarship. We want to understand if, if it's scripture and it's that important to us, we want to understand what was it trying to convey to its first readers. We've got to start there. That's got to be the, the baseline right? And so, uh, paying attention to language and word usage and historical, social, religious context, very important.
3: And I think we have to be honest about the fact that some of the ways that we talked about the book of Revelation were to prove our rightness as the one Mm -hmm. and only true church. Mm -hmm. And just as this book is not about us knowing when the end is gonna come. So we're on the inside of this. This book is not about our church either. And we have to be honest about that. And I think once we acknowledge that, that this book is for the people of the time and we get to overhear it and see what part of this message is useful to us today, then then we'll get a lot more out of it Um, because it's not about us. It's not about our church. It is about God. It is about Christ, and if we can keep that in mind as we're reading it, we'll we'll get a a much a much <laughs> uh, we'll get much the same benefit as the first hearers did uh, okay. to be reminded who is God, what is this kingdom of God that has been talked about, and how does it fit in with this suffering that we're going through right now? And if you're finding yourself in a time of suffering and wondering where is God? You might really benefit from hearing the good news part of the Book of Revelation. Um, avoid some of the, you know, fire and brimstone parts, which people, oddly enough, those are the ones that people often. There's some fascination. To. There's some
1: fascination with that, yeah. Is it? Or maybe you know, a lot of us tend to go Luther's direction and
3: just say maybe it shouldn't even be in there. I don't. I don't know. Well, you it's, know, um, and, and it's when, complicated. Yep. When you think about some of the damage that has been done to people um, and how they've been turned off from God because of the fear that people have used this book to instill in people. You know, you can't blame people for saying, yeah, let's let's just, you know, end it a, a book. Early. <laughs> I,
2: I think it's it's in the New Testament canon. And so it's going to be used. And it's going to be used by people who shouldn't be using it
4: mm-hmm. and who
2: are poorly informed. Mm-hmm. So it really is the church's responsibility to give better interpretations of it, to use it and give better interpretations of it so people can see that there's an option, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm reminded too that uh, the, the great Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn, who died in the last couple of years, um, he, in one of his books, he said, we have to remember that in our New Testament canon, we have one apocalypse. But we have four gospels. <laughs> In other words, we we can't let this book overtake the rest of the New Testament's message, and we can't and we can't let uh, abusive readings of it overtake the church's message. So we have to we have to give just give better interpretations, and that means using it and introducing people to it and introducing them to good resources and getting getting them <laughs> detoxed from all the bad all the bad uses of Revelation. Right,
3: and I think it is okay and maybe even important to say this book is not about this, this, and this. um, So that people can clear out some of the garbage that has been um, piled up (laughs) on on this book and say, no, it's not about those things. Let that go. Let's take another look and see what is the good news here. And I think that's always a good way. What is the good news in this book? And there's actually a lot. There is. there's actually a lot of it
2: so uh, we, we did a quick summary of some good news pieces and this wouldn't be everything in the book but so for example in this book the good news is that anyone can come the table is open all the time
3: and and near the end there's this idea of the the kingdom of God coming down to Earth and there's all these doorways and they're always open mm-hmm. they are always open
2: and for all of its violent imagery this book is about the end of violence. In other words, in, in God's preferred future, there is no, no place for violence. That's part of the message of the book. Um, this book reinforces the reign of God on earth will happen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not, it's not a pipe dream. And another thing about this book that I love is that in this book, God does not have a most favored nation. <laughs> it's an anti-nationalistic book. And we that's something we really need to be able to, to, to take in deeply in church life right now. God's purposes include the earth. The earth is not disposable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the earth is included in salvation. And so, um, I'll come back to one at the end about hope that I think is really uh, a powerful, a, a powerful aspect of apocalyptic literature and of this book. So yeah, well, let's
1: of- move into that. Um, how we can look at the good news and
3: right. experiencing this text. Mm-hmm. Good. And as we've tried to say with each of these um people's experience with scripture has not always been positive and we look at this as being the author's understanding using in this in this case it's a vision that the author using the language that they have um, is explaining it and describing it because they want to share with others their, their experience with god and that's exactly what's happening here but that experience is shaped by the language the genre that they're going to be using um the, the images that they're drawing from, all of those kinds of things. And this is a really good example, Book of Revelation, of the author using um, literary, um, cultural situations and, and symbols of his own time. And we can't assume that, that uh, when we read it, we'll get the same thing out of it that the first readers got, and that's okay. But we can come to it and say, Perhaps there is something there that this writer is wanting to pass on to the to Christians in his time that would be helpful to them. And maybe some of that could be helpful to us as well. So we're not looking at scripture as, you know, all words of God, just telling you what you must be or not be and uh, judging you and all of that. Uh, We're looking at as, as somebody's writing that's tried to encourage uh, and in this vision experience of John that is what he's trying to do so i'm going to do two different things here i'm going to start with that first that first passage that we read i'm going to go to one part in it and just give us a chance to sit with it for a little bit, and this is that image of Jesus. I saw one like the Son of Man, um, and here he is. He's walking among the golden lampstands, the seven churches, with the, their stars, the their angels, and and so um, what I would ask you to do is. Just hold on to that image, that idea of Jesus walking among the congregations. And close your eyes if that's helpful. Imagine Jesus walking amidst your congregation or the group of people that you worship with. Just let yourself get there. And then prayerfully consider this. Who do you sense Jesus drawing your attention to in your congregation or the group that you meet with?
4: Who is Jesus touching or comforting right now? Who is he looking for?
3: And to whom is he whispering, "I am with you," or "Go out with courage"? And if you have some time uh, later to to do that as a prayer exercise, um, take that image of Christ walking in the midst of your congregation or your group and notice who who he is especially has concerns for. And then I'm gonna take you to a passage near the end of the book. And, and I think this one is, is again, one of those places where there's lots to be seen and to be heard. So I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Yeah, lots of Old Testament images there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals, he will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, meaning John, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You get a real sense for the congregation that is struggling so hard and unsure. Is it worth hanging on? Is it worth hanging on? So this is like full disclosure. Um, There is one more sentence after this verse eight. This is Revelation 21, two to seven. And and in verse eight, you'll have one of those passages that gets plucked out and used all by itself. So I'm going to mention it because got to keep the balance here um it says but as for the cowardly the faithless the polluted the murderers the fornicators the sorcerers the idolaters and all liars their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death so that's the often where people go they go to that verse and say okay um but as tony and i were talking about this earlier tony's described this as this is kind of the This is the warning. This is not the message, if that makes sense. So it's like you're driving along on a road trip and you see a sign that says, danger, falling rocks. And if you were to say, oh, my whole trip was traumatized by this sign, uh, danger, falling rocks, then you've missed the point of the journey uh, by focusing on the warning. And so I think that's really important because we obscure the good news quite often mm-hmm. by only focusing on the warning. And but anyhow, so that's one of the places I want to to go to. But I want you to notice what is it that this passage is saying? And you'll notice they don't say that it's God. It's obviously God on the throne. but they use uh, the the term, Uh, what the author hears coming from, from the throne, or the one seated on the throne, or he, again, with the assumption that this is God. And so what is it that we hear from the throne? We hear, see, the home of God is among mortals. That's where God chooses to be. I think that's, we underestimate Um, the power of that, especially for people who are struggling. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And then the idea of God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And that, in the midst of all of that, those might feel like, you know, Mushy words, but these are people who are in danger of losing everything. Um, And so, this idea that death does not have power over them. And then, see, I'm making all things new. This brings them back to what's been happening in in their life because of this, of Christ being in their life, of the Spirit having moved with them and through the congregation. It it refocuses them. I am the alpha and the the omega, the beginning and the end. We're in the middle somewhere. And Mm -hmm. uh, the God who was there at the beginning and who we've experienced in community, in times of good times and bad, God is also the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Lovely words, but when we know what the situation is of those to whom these are given, we we get a much more the sense of them having real power. So which of these messages of God speak to your life most strongly right now? If you were to take one of these in as something that God wants us to hear, which of these would The most meaningful to you. And then who needs to hear this good news about God's desire for all people? Who do you know that needs to hear one of these statements of good news of this God who cares for all people?
4: Oh, Karen we can't hear you.
1: I'm not sure what Poltergeist muted my microphone. <laughs> so uh, we're ending uh, in a spirit of hope. And Tony, you said you had some comments about that that you wanted to share.
2: Oh yeah, I, I have a a quote from a favorite theologian of mine, Jürgen Moltmann, German theologian who's in his 90s. He's still, as far as I know, he's still alive. But but his book, the the Theology of Hope, was a blockbuster theology theological book back in the 1960s, but he says this, quote, meaningful action is always possible only within a horizon of expectation. Otherwise, all decisions and actions would hang unintelligibly and meaninglessly in the air. In other words, unless we have something to hope for, we will not act decisively for justice now. And so if the book of Revelation has anything to say about it, Justice, justice will finally win. Therefore, anything we do for justice now matters.
1: Which are important words for a community that values the pursuit of peace, God, shalom, as what we uh, hope for. And, um, and I suppose our central um, kind of theology is that God with us in, in this world. Yeah, absolutely. So I imagine a lot of our listeners didn't expect to uh, end in a beautiful hope-filled space at the end of our uh, podcast on the book of Revelation, but that's where we are. And I'm going to conclude in that spirit with a couple of verses from the hymn in Community of Christ Sings called God Bestows on Every Sense. And it's... um, hymn number 572 in Community of Christ Sings. And I like this because it takes a little bit of um, the imagery and the sense that we find in Revelation and shares it in this really um, beautiful way. God bestows on every sense beauty as hopes, evidence, signs of what the earth will be just beyond what we can see. Vibrant pictures in our dreams, brushed with crystal color schemes, vanish from a waking mind, leaving just a trace behind. In a burnt and blackened field, broken ground begins to yield tiny, fragile sprouts of green, hints of forests yet unseen. God makes all creation new, turning back what people do and building up what we destroy, singing Sorrow into joy, very much the imagery and content of that last piece, um, Charmaine, that you led us through in that experience as well. So we'll let the uh, author who I did not quote in that text, let's see, that would be Adam M. L. Tice. We'll let uh, Adam have the last uh, word on our closing thought, and we hope that you will join us for our next episode which will actually be our final New Testament episode. And it will be a Shebrew episode where we take a look at some women in the New Testament in a way that maybe gets overlooked when we're doing some of our biblical exploration. So look forward to that. And until then, I'm Karen Peter with Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith. This has been New Brew, part of Project Zion podcast. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a 5-star rating. Project Zion podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.